0: For that, honey, a great song. If we would uh, take your Bibles today, and we're going to Galatians chapter 5 while the young people are dismissed. Thank you so much for coming today. Some folks are visiting with us and visiting family, and you're, you're, and you're here uh, on Sunday morning. It's always a blessing to a pastor to see uh, some folks stay home when family comes. Other, fam- other people bring them. That's a blessing. And uh, so I'm glad to see that. And Nate, you're sitting next to your mother-in-law today, right? Amen. That's good to see. It's good to see. <laughs> Great to have you today again. Last time we, uh, it just so happened, I had mother-in-law jokes when you guys showed up, and I, I'm, I was afraid you'd never come back again, so it was good to see you Galatians chapter 5. If you spend any time on social media, you'll see lots of memes and posts about adulting, uh, how people don't like to adult. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually a verb now, I guess. I mean, that's uh, the, the T-shirts you see and such. Adulthood it's been said, is like looking both ways before crossing a street and then getting hit by an airplane. You ever felt like that before? Adulting is easy, someone wrote. It's like riding a bike when the bike is on fire and the ground is on fire and everything is on fire. Adulting, another lady said, is having home Advil and purse Advil, whatever that means. I, uh, being an adult, another person wrote, being an adult is all about being tired, telling other people how tired you are, and listening to other adults tell you how tired they are. That's pretty much a good summing, uh, summing up of adulthood, isn't it? I have a picture this morning. This is pretty much what adulthood, I think, uh, amounts to. You have to get yourself out of bed and have to walk yourself to work and feed yourself. That's what adulting is all about. But we have to grow, amen? Because uh, grown-up children are not cute. If you're an adult and you still act like a child, you don't get off the couch, you expect other people to feed you and do for you. That's not cute for very long. Well, the same is true spiritually speaking. We need to grow spiritually. We need to grow out of the babyhood of our spiritual life. Uh, but the Bible talks about uh, the milk of the Word and the meat of the Word. And so we have to grow out of this uh, baby in the spiritual life as well. Now we are talking for last week, this week, and next week about the fruit of the spirit, and we're talking about the fact of whether or not we are growing. Our theme this year is growth, and we want to uh, challenged in in the first Sunday of, in January. We challenge you to grow in your spiritual life, and and uh, I talked about some different steps I took to do that in my own life, and and uh, just. We're doing a six-month checkup. That's what we're doing here in the in just the beginning of June. We're six months in. We're doing a checkup on how you're doing in your growth. And the best way to do it, like your parents did when you were growing up, and they stood you next to the door, and they made marks on the door as you grew. Uh, my marks never went very high, but uh, some of yours might have went higher. But, uh, those were, those were basically stages of your growth that you can see. And many times you go into homes today and kids that are in their forties, there's still a door with marks where it shows their growth as they're growing up. Well, this is the marks of your spiritual growth that we find in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. These, uh, we look at these as almost like those marks on the door that shows you whether or not you're growing or not. Last week we looked at the first three. Uh, these were emotional uh, uh, fruits. They were love, joy, and peace. And so we went through that. Now we've got three more we're going to look at today. Look with me, if you would, Galatians chapter 5, and we'll start at verse number 21. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. I want to ask you today the question I asked you last week, are you growing? Are you growing? Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes here to apply these truths from Scripture to our life. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. These next three fruits we're going to talk to today, as I mentioned, the the first three are emotional. These are evidential. Uh, these three fruits show us the proof or they provide the proof that the work of God is being done in your hearts. One of the reasons is because these are not natural uh, outcrop, natural fruits. It kind of requires an infusion of the supernatural into your life. You'll see that as we go along here. But it starts out, the first one here, long-suffering. The first one we're looking at today, long-suffering. Long-suffering. The original word is... Mukrathamia—it's a compound word that comes from makros, which means long, and thumos, which means temper. So, really, what about the literal meaning of this word is long-tempered? We know what a short-tempered person is like, don't we? Someone who blows up at the slightest provocation. You know what you call a snowman that has a temper tantrum? A meltdown. You ever seen anybody have a meltdown? Or the doctor, the short-tempered doctor that doesn't have any patience. Look, they don't get better. you got to just chuckle and we'll move on, okay? That's that's good. I I like how some of them, they go the ripple effect as they move across and people, ah, I got it. Friends, your life is in the hands of any fool that makes you lose your temper. You're in their control. There was a little boy with a, a story I read, a little boy had a really bad temper, and his dad gave him a bag of nails and said, every time you lose your temper, I want you to go to the back fence and drive a nail into that fence, and so he did that, and every time he got mad, every time he lost his cool, he went out and drove a nail in the back fence. Well, the time went on, after he drove like 37 nails the first week, the kid decided, you know what, it's more trouble uh, to drive a nail than it is just to hold my temper, and so he started to hold his temper a little more. And after a while, he was able to do it so that uh, he told his father that I don't have to drive any nails anymore hardly. And so his father said, well, let me tell you what we'll do. This time, instead of when you lose your temper driving a nail, whenever you know that you are holding your temper when you could lose it, go out and pull a nail out of the fence. Well, it took several weeks, but uh, he worked as hard and diligently as he could, and soon he was able to take all of the nails out of the fence. And he came and told his dad that, and he said, The father took him out to the fence and says, Very well done, son, but I want you to look at the holes in the fence. This fence will never be the same for the scars that it bears from those nails. And I can tell you, friends, whatever you say in anger, whatever you do uh, losing your temper, that you might get forgiveness, you might be able to move on, but it will always leave scars that will be there for a very long time sometimes. We leave scars when we lose our temper. Sometimes they last for years and they can damage even sometimes relationships for life. Now, that's a short-tempered person. A long-tempered person is just the opposite. He has restraint and patience. Long-suffering is the capability of self-restraint in the face of provocation. This person, uh, the one who has developed the fruit of long-suffering, does not rush to revenge. Long-suffering, though, is not quite the same thing as patience. Patience does not surrender to a trial or a circumstance. Patience would be the opposite of despondency. Uh, And patience is important, amen? We are born impatient. Uh, From birth, we are impatient. Have you ever noticed that when a baby wakes up in the middle of the night, and he or she is hungry, they do not lie there in their crib and think, well, you know, mom and dad had a long day, and they're tired. And I'll just, I'll wait for breakfast. I can hold on. I'm hungry, but I can hold on till breakfast. No, no, no. That baby will start screaming and impatiently demand what it wants right now. The problem is that many of us haven't changed much from those days we spent in the crib. We still want what we want and we want it now. We battle with impatience. But long suffering's a little different. Long suffering is the opposite of anger. Now, when Moses and the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai, you know the story, Moses went up the mountain and he would, there, would receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And while he was gone a number of days, the children of Israel began to get impatient. And so they didn't know when Moses or if Moses would be back. And they said to Aaron, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. So Aaron made this golden calf and the people sank into blatant idolatry. The sin was met with swift punishment when Moses came back down off the mountain. And then God told Moses that he was going to abandon the people, but he would send an angel to go with them into the promised land. And this is what Moses said. If thy presence go not with me, Carry us not up hence Exodus chapter thirty three verse fifteen Moses kind of turned into a mediator said God if you don't go I don't want to go I we have to have your presence with us and so the Lord says uh, the Lord the Lord God merciful and gracious long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity Ephesians, uh, Exodus thirty four six and so God did forgive them why because he was long suffering. When he could have had anger, when he should have had anger, he had a long suffering for his people. Although they had provoked him, he did not rush to retaliate. Paul, The Apostle Paul uses the word long suffering in the New Testament to describe the way that God holds his wrath from the human race. He catalogs in Romans chapter 1 a whole list of terrible sins. And then he says, uh, he follows that up with uh, Romans 2.4. They despised, he says, by the way, they despised the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. But he went on to say that the goodness of God leadeth to thee to repentance. So as wicked as mankind is, we serve a long-suffering God. We serve a forgiving God. Nobody has ever demonstrated long-suffering like Jesus. Uh, he was long-suffering with His disciples. On His last night, in Gethsemane uh, on earth he was in Gethsemane he begged them to watch and pray and you know the story they fell asleep and he goes and prays and he sweats drops of blood he comes back and he sees his disciples and they're sleeping at his greatest need and he wakes them up and he says can't you just pray with me for a little bit and he goes on again and then they fall asleep again The disciples needed to pray at this time. Judas and the mob were already working their way toward them. But did Jesus kick them awake? No, He did not. Did He reprimand them? No, He didn't. In the end, He let them sleep. He said, the the flesh is weak, the spirit truly is ready. Mark 14, 38. He was long-suffering toward the unbelief of His generation. He said this, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I suffer you? Matthew 17, 17. The spirit of unbelief followed him all the way into the halls of Pilate and not once did he react in an anger, angry way. He was long-suffering with the Samaritans. In, in their bigotry and pride, the Samaritans would not let Jesus and His disciples pass through their city. <laughs> Remember, James and John, they reacted to that. They got a little angry. James and John said, Lord, will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Wow. What a way we react. Have you ever felt like that? Got mistreated at a store or or, uh, something bad happens yesterday. I have a return that I have to return to Amazon, something I bought, can't use. So I did the return. And normally you do the drop off at UPS store, but this time they did a UPS pickup and I have to wait for the driver to come. Well, being in and out, the driver has missed me a couple of times, and so uh, I decided yesterday I'll just take it up to the store and drop it off at the UPS store, okay, right up there. So I go up to the UPS store, and she says, No, I can't take it. We're not affiliated with UPS. Those are the words she used. We're not affiliated with UPS. I said, But I drop UPS off all the time. Yeah, but she says it's a different different faction, a different uh, a group that does the pickup and all this. And I understand that it might be a different department, but whatever, that's the kind of thing that makes me lose my mind, Brother John, you know. Just, I'm at, we're not affiliated with UPS, but there's a sign. That says, the UPS store, you know. And it just, and you want to call down fire. But, but thankfully, the phrase is not going pastoral, it's going postal. And so they were safe and I was able to hold it together. Here's what Jesus said when they said, can we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Here's, I find it interesting what he said. You know not what spirit ye are of. Wait a second. Let's examine that. You see, they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. That happened in Acts on, on Pentecost. They didn't have the Holy Spirit in their life. They could not exhibit the fruit of the Spirit guess what, friend? If you're a child of God, you have received the Holy Spirit, and you can exhibit the fruit, and we need to. He was long-suffering. He was long-suffering with Judas over and over. He gave him the opportunity to do the right thing. He was still willing to forgive even at the moment of betrayal itself. He was long-suffering with Simon Peter, willing to forgive his denial. He was long-suffering with James, his half-brother. If you know anything about James, you know that he was a pharisaical, narrow-minded kind of man. And I can't imagine the, the time they had growing up together, what it must have been like and the hours that Jesus spent at His hands. But after the resurrection, Jesus went out of His way to find Him and save Him. 1 Corinthians fifteen seven. Long-suffering is such a rare character trait, but it should be a part of your life and mine as well. How often, Peter said, how often, must I forgive my brother who sins against me? How oft do I forgive him? That's in Matthew 18. The, then feeling super pious and super generous, he says, Till seven times? That was way more than was expected in that day and age. And so he was going to show Jesus how super spiritual he was. Jesus called him out. He says, I say not unto thee until seven times, but seventy times seven. Whoo! Even in homeschool math, that's a lot, amen? That's, that's a lot of forgiving. And so, for that kind of long-suffering, the point is that we need something outside of ourselves. We can't forgive 70 times 7. You know, now, the flesh, the flesh might be able to conjure up forgiving 7 times. But for 70 times 7, you need an infusion of something greater than you or I, And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Because you see, friend, the Christian life isn't just difficult. It's impossible without the Holy Spirit. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. How are you doing? How are you doing in the long-suffering department? Are you growing? Are you growing? That's the mark on the door. Long-suffering. Are you growing? Next we come to gentleness and goodness. Now, I'm going to combine them because they're siblings. In fact, I'll show you in a minute, they are Sometimes transposed in their translation. There's almost the same word, but, and I wondered as I was going through here, why did, why are they both listed? And I'll show you in a little bit why they're both listed, even though they're, st- they're so much alike. But gentleness is sometimes spoken of as kindness. It is a conduct that is thoughtful and considerate of others. Goodness is the goodness and righteousness according to God's standard, not according to man's standard. The word for gentleness is krestates. It means kindness, integrity, and goodness of heart. It's important that we allow the Holy Spirit to teach us how to be gentle. We need to be gentle. Because we live in a self-serving world today, don't we? And it has a way of bringing out the worst in us, doesn't it? Traffic, all right, things like that. It has a way of bringing out our worst. And so gentleness is conduct that is thoughtful and considerate of others. The word for goodness is agathosune. 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 I said it 966 times in my office correctly. Agathosune. It means uprightness of heart, goodness, and beneficial to others. The adjective agathos is used all the time throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's used to describe Jesus to describe God by Jesus when he said to the young lawyer, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. That's the word good, agathos, that he uses there. And so it is also used to describe Barnabas that uh, the Bible said was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 11, verse 24, I love Barnabas. The goodness of Barnabas is what led him to throw his arms around and accept Saul of Tarsus who would become the Apostle Paul when he got saved. You remember Saul was the one that was killing people and throwing people in jail for serving the Lord, and then he ran into God on the Damascus Road, and something happens when you meet Jesus. Everything gets flip-flopped in your life, amen? And so he got changed, and now he was a saved child of God, and he sent word to the Apostles, and the Apostles said, no way, you are not welcome at our house. We don't have nothing to do with you. Obviously, this is a trick. It was Barnabas who said, you know what? Everyone deserves a chance. I'm going to go put my arm around Saul and I'm going to help him. And what a blessing it was. He was good like that. Uh, he, he, He was interested in only doing what's good and what was right. He went to Saul when no one else would because everyone needs a chance. That same goodness uh, is what caused him to stand up for John Mark in John in Acts chapter 15. Him and the Apostle Paul were having an argument and the Apostle Paul said about Mark, no, he's a quitter. He's uh he's weak. I don't want him on my team. Uh, he's quit on us before and I don't want to deal with him anymore. And Barnabas, so he showed love and he showed acceptance to him. He was patient with Mark and loved on him. Why? Because everyone he felt needs a second chance. And so he gave that to Mark. Barnabas was patient with Mark and loved him. And uh, this is the kind of person he was. He was good. He had goodness in him. The word agathosune, as I mentioned, is a synonym to Christace. So both of them are basically synonyms in the original language. Gentleness and goodness are from the same tree of family virtues. They are kinfolk, if you will. So the word translated goodness, this is an interesting thought, in our text is used 18, eight times in the New Testament. The word translated gentleness in our text. Eight times in the New Testament, four of those times is translated goodness. So they basically mean about the same thing. And uh, they are pretty much synonyms. Now, I'll get to why they're both there in a minute, but the kindest man who ever lived was Jesus. And oh, how good and how kind was Jesus. Peter summarized the three and a half years he spent with Jesus when he said in Acts 10.38, he went about doing good. That's what Jesus did. How kind he was to the mothers of Jerusalem when they brought their little ones to Jesus and Jesus loved on them and took time for them even though the disciples wanted to send them away in Matthew 19. How kind he was to Jairus and his little girl when even though he was busy, he took time out To love on them and to heal her in Matthew chapter, or Luke chapter 8. How kind he was to touch that leper. That leper who probably hadn't felt the human touch for years in his life. And he came to Jesus begging for cleansing. And Jesus, the first thing he did is he reached out and touched him. Oh, what that meant. That kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's found in uh, Matthew chapter 8. How kind he was to Peter in Luke chapter 24 when Peter was overwhelmed with shame and guilt. How kind he was to the dying thief in Luke chapter 23 and taking him to heaven because he repented of his sins and asked Christ to save him. In fact, it is impossible for us to look at the life of Jesus and ever imagine him being unkind, isn't it? He was such a loving, loving Savior. Now, that being said, do goodness and gentleness fall on top of your list of desired character traits. Sometimes, I, I'm, I, I'm a man, so I think like a man, and, and uh, maybe more for ladies than men, I don't know, but it seems like a man, that might not rank the highest. Gentleness and goodness. It really should, uh, because you know, for some it might mean that, or they might think it means to be a pushover. To others, it might be a desired virtue. Regardless, these character traits... In today's culture about as scarce as hen's teeth, it's hard to find people that are full of goodness and gentleness. We are in a dog-eat-dog world. There is not much gentleness and goodness, even where you expect to find it. Many of our homes are filled with toxic situations. Many of our churches are filled with bitterness. It is tragic how few people live the life of generous and goodness as it gives it here. Now, the word goodness has a little stronger connotation than the word for generous here in our, our gentleness, in our text. It's doing what's right, uh, goodness, and it's sometimes that takes a, t- a call for a tougher stand. Have you ever noticed that? Have you been a parent to a teenager? <laughs> sometimes it takes a, a tougher stand to do the right thing than might gentleness. For example, Jesus' inherent goodness caused him to pick up a whip to take out after a bunch of money changers in the temple and to drive them out flipping tables as he went. That was his goodness that did that. Uh, it was his goodness that while he was preaching, some of the snooty uh, nose-in-the-air Pharisees made some comments and Jesus tore into them, taking the gloves off, called them a bunch of serpents and vipers and hypocrites in front of everybody. It was Jesus' goodness that did that. Uh, it was a little, it, it sometimes is a little harsher. Sometimes it is a little more stern. Uh, scholars tend to uh, define uh, krestates or gentleness as the gentle, gentler element in Jesus' perfect character and agathosune, goodness, as the sterner element. Okay, To be both kind and good is the ideal. That's the point I'm trying to make. We do need both of these. Gentleness is, By the way, that's what causes a parent to look at their child and say no, even when it upsets the child. The goodness, knowing what's best for them. Sometimes goodness doesn't come across as gentleness, but it's still good and we still need to do it. Let me go a little further. Gentleness is uh, kind. It has the emphasis on the outward action. Goodness means virtuous. It has the focus and emphasis on the inward attitude. Oh, how we need both of these in our lives today. Can I tell you, and it seems like today, the church in general, I mean, has moved to only the gentleness side. We must be kind and loving and accepting to the LGBT E-I-E-I-E-I-O movement. Uh movement. We must open our hearts to that despicable drag show that was held in our own town here, uh, thrust on our community. Now, I won't even honor the name, but a pastor this week came out and he made this statement. We need to rethink the Bible when it comes to same-sex marriage. Yes, the Bible is against it, but we know so much more now. Now, 100% we must love them. 100% we have to, our doors are open to anyone. Amen? 100% we will embrace anybody who walks in here, but we do not embrace the sin, we only embrace the sinner. And now they try to separate that, that if we don't embrace the sin, well, we must hate the sinner. And that is not the case at all. The Lord loves everybody. He loves every single sinner. That does not mean that we put our stamp of approval on the sin that they commit. All right? So, that's where goodness comes in, see? Gentleness is just gentle we love everybody. But goodness, it has to be balanced with goodness. If you don't balance gentleness with goodness, then you're just going to be a milksop and you won't stand for anything. Amen. So goodness has to step in and be a part of that too. Now, how do we get these very quickly? How do we get these in our lives? Because we need them both. Well, they, they begin with God. We have to understand that. Over and over the scriptures speak of a gentle and good God. He is Good to all His children. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arms and He shall carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In Psalm one seventeen one and 2, He says, Praise Him, all ye people, for His merciful kindness toward us. But His gentleness and His goodness can only be appreciated alongside His omnipotence and His holiness. Because the greater His power the more precious His kindness. Because we... I've said this many times before, that your true character is shown through by what you do for those who can do nothing for you in return. Now, it's easy for us to be nice to people who can advance us in our careers, who can advance us socially, but for those who can do nothing for you in return, how you treat them says a lot about you. And God... I mean, when he, when we look at him, all of his power and all of his glory that he has and still treating us with kindness, he can do anything he wants, including abuse his power, yet he uses it only for his glory and for our good. Praise the Lord. What a blessing. Uh, he does not tolerate sin, yet he loves the sinner despite his sin. Oh, the deep, Love of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is uh, He is gentle to those who despise Him. He is good to those who never reciprocate. He loves those who never love Him back. And then He asks us to do the same. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's where it gets hard. Yeah, we understand all that about God, but you want me to love those who will never love me back? You want me to do good to those that hate me? Let me show you a verse if you'll turn over uh, just a few pages from here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5. Actually, it's right after Galatians. So it should be two pages to your right. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. This verse has always been interesting to me. Here's what the Bible says. And be not drunk with wine, verse 18. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess but be ye filled with the Spirit. I remember reading that for the first time years and years ago. I thought, what is that? How does the Bible offer us that a coin like that with those two sides? Be not drunk with wine, but be ye filled with the Spirit. Because I can't think of a more conflicting comparison than a drunkard and a Spirit-filled Christian. Can you? That's quite a contrast. Now the Bible clearly is not uh, does not allow for consuming alcohol. It tells us here not to be drunk. It tells us in Proverbs 21:17 the one who loves wine will not be rich. It tells us in Proverbs 20 verse 1 that wine is a mocker and you're foolish to drink it. it tells us in Proverbs 23:31 don't even look at it. So yet this association here is used to show us or commend us to be filled with the spirit. Now let me try and Explain it this way because I'd like to dissect this verse and get some truth from it because there's something actually really wonderful about this passage here. What is it? What happens to a person who is drunk with wine or alcohol or whiskey? It doesn't matter, if you wine specifically, you are surrendering control to something other than yourself. That's what's happening when you're drunk with wine. Now, full disclosure, I have never been drunk. I have seen many people who were and Pastor Nick told me about it too so I got some did some research on this and and uh, so I know I know a little bit about it okay <laughs> That's a joke all right no no one some are like yeah I kind of figured it I kind of figured it no one would argue that you're affected by it amen let's look at a list of them number 1 your walk is affected when you're drunk that's why they tell you when they get you out of the car and they say, all right, walk that straight line. I've walked. I've driven by several times when people are stopped and they're trying to walk that straight line. Yep, somebody's been drinking on grandpa's cough syrup, you know. And uh, so they have to walk a straight line because why? Your walk is affected when you are drunk. Secondly, your speech is affected. You tend to slur your words just a little bit more and you can't quite get the thoughts out, you want to say. Number three, your self-image is affected. You think you can do things like dance and sing karaoke and stuff like that. Your perception of your own abilities is affected. You think you can fight six guys and take them. Your treatment of others is affected. Now, some people, they, they drink and they turn into just monsters. They beat their families and do things they would never do if they were not intoxicated. But because they're intoxicated, they're, treatment, they're, they're treating others differently. Others turn into marshmallows. I remember years ago, we had a we were living in a trailer court at that time, right after we were first married. And I had a neighbor called Bruce, and he, they were nice people I've tried to witness to. Them. I think they came to church with us one time. And, and one night, about two in the morning, I guess, about two in the morning, the phone rang. And I went and answered the phone and it was Bruce. And he asked if I could come pick him up. And he was gassed at this place uh, at a bar. and He could, didn't want to drive. He knew it had enough sense he shouldn't drive. And I was the only person you could think of to call or the only one dumb enough to pick up the phone. And uh, so at two in the morning, I drove out, out to pick him up and to bring him home. And now I've learned uh, this isn't the time you have theological discussions. All right, so... I just kind of didn't say much after I picked him up, but all the way home. I just, I love you, man. I love you. I just, you're just, I just love you. You know, he was not, he'd have never spoke like that normally. But it changed him. Why? Because it'll affect the way you treat other people. It'll affect the way you talk. Uh, number six, your inhibition is affected. You'll do things you wouldn't normally do. You'll take risks you wouldn't normally take. You'll uh, do dangerous things sometimes that you normally wouldn't do because of being intoxicated. Why? Why is all this true? Because you have handed yourself over to the control of something other than yourself. That's why people will say, uh, sometimes take one look, "Ah, don't worry about it, that's the alcohol talking. It's not the alcohol, it's the person, but they've attributed what's being said to what's controlling him. Don't miss that, that's important to remember. It's the alcohol talking. Now, Your Bible says, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That's odd. Let's consider that phrase. When the Bible says to be filled with the Spirit, it is not saying get more of the Spirit. I want to set that down very clearly. You got all of the Holy Spirit when you got saved. The moment you got saved, you got all of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19, what know you not? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he makes it real clear. He says, if any man have not the Spirit, he is none of his. Not even a little bit. He's none of his if you don't have the Holy Spirit. So we have all of the Holy Spirit when we get saved. But when it tells us to be filled with the Spirit, what that means is he needs to get more of you. You don't need to get more of him let's get back to drunkenness. The word drunk here in this verse means to be saturated, to mean to be dominated by. Now, what makes you drunk is not how much alcohol you have, but how much the alcohol has you. Because some people can drink 10 glasses and it doesn't affect them at all. Others drink three glasses and they're they're completely schnockered off the three glasses. All right, so it's not so much about how much of alcohol they have, it's how much that alcohol has them that, con- that, that talks about controlling them here. So what makes, you, what makes you drunk? Not how much alcohol you have, but how much the alcohol has you. But wait, the Bible says, the alcohol should not have you. The Holy Spirit should have you, it says. It, it is you surrendering your control to him. In other words, When you have be filled with the Spirit, you're surrendering yourself to His control, you're giving it all over, what's happening? You're doing exactly the same thing the drunk person does. You are transferring control of you to something or somebody else. That's good stuff, isn't it? Now, what happens when you do that? Well, I have a list. Your walk is affected when you're filled with the Spirit. You don't act like you used to act. Your speech is affected. When you're filled with the Spirit, your language changes. Instead of cursing and complaining, you're praising and positive. Your self-image is affected. Oh, now you know that in you dwelleth no good thing, but in Christ you are a new creature. Your, the perception of your abilities is affected. Now you know that greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world you understand you have new abilities. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Number five, your treatment of others is affected. Now you can love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Listen, you don't have the ability to do this on your own. You don't. How can we love our enemies? How can we do good to those that hate us and are constantly doing nasty things to us? How can we? Well, we can't do it on our own. When we do it, you know what people say now. That's the Holy Spirit talking. Whew, that's good stuff, isn't it? Because you have surrendered your control over to something or somebody else, and people know. People know because they know what people are. That if you love somebody, and if you treat people good, and you do treat people uh, generously, and and uh, you're kind to them, and you do all these things as a Christian should do, they're going to know instinctively that's not them. There's something about them. They have something that I don't have. And they have the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit talking. It's not me. It's good stuff. Number six, your inhibition is affected. You'll do things that you would not normally do, like witness to people. Teach a Sunday school class. Even get up behind a pulpit and preach or something like that. You'll do things you would thought you'd never do if you let the Holy Spirit have your life. You'll affect people you never thought you could affect. You'll make an impact you never thought you could make if you let the Holy Spirit have you. Oh, oh, listen, be filled with the Spirit. Don't you see the wonderful truth bound up in that verse as simply saying, uh, you cannot do it on your own. Paul knew this. He said in Romans seven eighteen, for to will is present with me, but to do that which is good, I find not. The only way to obtain this kind of gentleness and goodness is from God, the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you the question again. Are you under the influence of something earthly or are you under the influence of someone heavenly? That's going to make all the difference. It can't be both, and it begins with God. Secondly, it's the base of greatness. Now, no one is ever great if they're not first good. No, never has there been a truly good or great deed that didn't begin with a good intent. David knew that if it weren't for the grace of God, he wouldn't have been king of Israel. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, 36, Thy gentleness have made me great. The basis of greatness is grace, God's gentleness and goodness. And then finally, bearing the gospel. It is only because of the goodness and gentleness of God that we're saved in the first place. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You see, friends, and this is, shouldn't be news, but our nature is not good in and of itself. We are not naturally good people. Uh, some, there are a lot of prosperity preachers and TV evangelists that will tell you differently, But I can tell you, the Bible doesn't say we're good people. In fact, the Bible says it very clearly in Romans chapter 2 verse, uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 12, actually. Just in case you wondered. Let's see if we can weasel out of this one. There's none that doeth good, no not one. That's what the Bible says. It's real clear about some stuff. And that's one of them. We don't, there's none that doeth good. Our sinful nature is not good. Only by being born again, only by having the Holy Spirit in our life can we ever hope to experience His goodness. As Christians, we were created, the Bible says, Ephesians 2.10, unto good works. We are called to be the light of the world, Matthew 5.14. Where to fulfill our mission, we have to be compassionate about those around us. We have to sympathize with the hurting. I'm talking about goodness and gentleness We must be sensitive to our neighbor's needs. We must serve others. Goodness will carry the gospel to a lost and dying world. Gentleness will carry it in the spirit of Christ. Goodness will speak the truth. Gentleness will speak it in love. Gentleness will care. Goodness will go. We have to be both. We have to have the goodness that drives us to do right and we have the gentleness that gives us the right spirit while we do it. I love the song that was sang earlier, How Can We Reach a World We Never Touch? How can we expect to make an impact when we're not out there showing the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? There's an old hymn, and it's not in our hymn book, but it's, it's called There's a Hill, a Green Hill Far Away by Cecil F. Alexander. And this is one of the verses, He died that we might be forgiven, He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by His precious blood. In a recent edition, an editor did sometimes what they do with songbooks, always drives me crazy, but they do this sometimes, where they change some of the words. And in a recent edition, he changed it from, He died to make us good, to, He died to do us good. Now, he kind of missed the whole point of the verse. Of course, Jesus died to do us good, amen? When He died, He provided a way of salvation for us. But He died for a far greater reason than that. He also died to make us good. He didn't die only to make us good positionally through salvation, although He does that. He also died to make us good practically through sanctification. He wants us to become like His Son, Jesus Christ. He wants us to become in the image of Him. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. wants us to become uh, like Jesus was. Goodness, gentleness, long-suffering. Now, He did all this knowing we're incapable of doing it ourselves. Why? Back to the verse I just read. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Why would God put in His Word, you need to be good, and then in another place say, there's none that doeth good? Well, there's a change that takes place. It's called salvation, and we get the Holy Spirit. And so now we are in a different situation because, friend, if you're here without Christ, you've never accepted Him as your personal Savior, you will live in ultimate frustration trying to do good. You'll try to do live right and do right and say the right things, and you'll constantly mess up. You'll feel like a failure because we cannot do it ourselves. God knows we can't. And so He inserts into our lives the Holy Spirit. And now it is not so much what we do, but what we allow Him to do through us. That's what He wants to, wants to work through us. Oh, that's an amazing thought. And one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to make us like Jesus. And the fruits of the Holy Spirit is goodness, gentleness, long suffering. He was good. We need to be good. He was gentle. We are to be gentle. He was long-suffering. We are to be long-suffering. I ask you, mark on the door, how you doing? Are you growing? Are you growing in this area or these three? Long-suffering, goodness, gentleness? Do we need a little help in some of these? I think we probably need help in all of them, but if we're honest with ourselves. But these are the growth indicators for our life. Our you growing I want to ask this question we'll close with it are you under the influence of something earthly or someone heavenly that's going to make all the difference in the world that will determine your growth we have long suffering goodness gentleness let's have every head bowed every eye closed I don't specifically spoke to you but I'd encourage you (coughs) that God spoke to your heart come and settle it this morning If you're here this morning, you've never accepted Christ as your personal savior. Why don't you come forward and let somebody take a Bible and show you how you can know that you know that you know you're going to heaven when you die. And then you'll have the Holy Spirit to help you live the life you need to. Would you stand along with me, heads bowed, eyes closed, as she begins to play? We'll have